What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Halftime Snacks podcast. This show features short interviews that you can listen during the halftime of your favorite sports events. Every Tuesday, I host fun conversations with talented people in the sports industry, where we'll learn from their stories, knowledge, and experiences. So go grab your favorite snack and come snack with us. Are you ready? Let's go. Today's episode features a guest with a fantastic track record in the sports industry. In fact, she's the only person to have worked on all sides of football. She worked for over 15 years in the Premier League, where she wore countless hats around fan campaigns, media, partnerships, policy, diversity, and so much more. Our guest then became an independent consultant for clients like Tottenham, Liverpool, Watford, Swansea FC, amongst others. Additionally, she has collaborated with multiple organizations like Kick It Out, the FSA, and Women in Sport to support and promote equality, diversity, and empowerment. She's the founder of Aposto, a digital platform that provides services and tech products for sports venues and organizations, and we're going to get into all of this in this conversation. Allow me to introduce Kathy Long. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Ah, it's a pleasure, Kathy. It's been a long time coming. The way we start uh, the halftime snacks is uh, through an icebreaker. So the one I have for you is: What is your craziest sports-related memory of all times? Oh, like you know, it probably just has to be being at the match. Probably has to be. It's a cliche, but it probably has to be Istanbul in the Champions League final in 2005. And at halftime, just thinking, you know, my team are out of this. I just want out of here. Like working out what was the worst ever score in the Champions League final like how much has the team been defeated by because this is going to be the most humiliating evening of our lives and like and the other thing is that all I wanted to do was actually find some food to eat because in the stadium there had been no food we had had nothing all day and all of our adrenaline had just absolutely sunk so we had like absolutely like zero you know like you have some adrenaline left and then you go goal behind and then you go another goal behind and then you're a third goal behind against AC Milan and you're just thinking get me out of here but I'm in the I'm 30 miles from Istanbul I'm in the middle of nowhere I can't escape and then I think suddenly finding that we actually have won the match it's probably the most bizarre experience of of my entire time well you do have tons of experiences in sports and I'm sure that you had to go through like a thousand experiences and memories that to find the craziest ones um, but thank you for sharing but let's talk more maybe more about your work at the the Premier League and I do want like Uh, the audience to visualize your work uh, because I do think that sometimes we hear you know people working at teams and people working at leagues um, and like we see it as very like this very high level but it's very much like just people doing great great work uh, including you so I do want you maybe to sh to share with us um, maybe let's start with some stories uh, one or two stories that come to mind that involved just specific problems that you had at the Premier League like problems that you wouldn't have like Uh, working, you know, in, in finance or in marketing, or just like a, a regular company, something very, very, very specific uh, problems that you had to like solve or things that you, you comes to mind uh, while, while you were working at the Premier League that will help us visualize a little bit better. Like what was it to work there? One that comes to mind, actually, is, is probably one of my most bizarre experiences now I think about, but is actually before I was at the Premier League. And this is when I was working for the Football Supporters Association. Um, in Euro 2000, when the Euros were in Holland and Belgium. 
And it was a real contrast between Holland and Belgium in the way that the games were policed. So in Holland, everything was pretty chilled. The police were pretty cool about everything. They didn't really expect any trouble. They just said, we've watered down the beer. Hey, don't worry about a thing. Like your England fans will be of no consequence to us. We don't care about them. We're, we're used to this, you know, don't we? they're going to be more scared of us. And they were right. In Belgium, in Charleroi, it was very different. And I did find myself having to basically try and prevent everything going wrong when England were playing Germany and there was a local bar owner who'd said there was a riot in his bar and actually we went down there to find out because they were going to send the police in with the tear gas and everything and we had turned up and we had to say but there isn't a riot like there's we could literally see the bar from where we had been when we'd had this report we were like can we just go to this bar before you send the police in because we can't see a riot from here and we can see the bar and basically the bar owner was just panicking because everyone was like watching the game in the bar on television and they're all standing on these tables and they're leaning on these chandeliers and like they're just enjoying themselves. They're just having an amazing time and they're beating Germany. So we said to the bar owner, no, you mustn't get them out of the bar. You mustn't close the bar because then you will have a riot. Like you have to just leave everybody where they are. And they were like, no, 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 absolutely. We have to get everybody out. So basically I had to keep the, the, the mayor of the, of the town, the chief of police, and the bar owner talking until the match finished. <laughs> Simply say that they didn't send the police in with tear gas and basically like get everybody out of this bar. And, you know, they just would have been sort of hell. And I was saying to them, just leave them where they are. And then if, if England win and you just don't disturb them now, just wait a few minutes, they'll all run up and jump in the fountain. And they looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, what is this woman talking about? And we're trying to translate between like Flemish and, and French and uh, different Belgian accents. It was really getting complicated. And afterwards they called me the fountain lady because all of these fans, of course, left the pub with no trouble and went and jumped in the fountain because that's what football fans do. So that's probably an unusual day at work, I suppose, you know. Um, I think at the league, I mean, there were always just bizarre things happening. I think there were always clubs wanting to make just really bizarre decisions. Like, you know, we would get clubs phoning us up and, and literally we'd be having conversations like when Blackburn Rovers were bought by the Venki family, this family from India whose background was chicken farming. So nobody could quite understand why these chicken farmers bought Blackburn Rovers. And the fans thought that there must be a conspiracy behind this. And I sympathised with their view because they weren't running it very well. And the only sort of rational explanation to hang yourself on would be, it must be a conspiracy. They can't just be getting this wrong, it must be a conspiracy. So the fans were campaigning and they were, they were smuggling live chickens in as a protest to the game, yeah. And we were having to have conversations with the safety officers about whether live chickens were allowed in football grounds. Um, and they seemed to be a theme actually, because at Fulham's training ground, they had chickens for a while. And, and there was there was a time when um, I remember that they were debating like what to call the chickens. And the manager got really upset about it because he thought that like the name they were giving the chickens was a joke against him and it wasn't at all. It was just like, it was just sort of a joke, but you sort of really weird things like that happen all of the time. Interesting, but it does, it does, sound, does sound like it's more about like understanding, understanding the people involved, like not, not not only like the people working there, uh, as, as you were saying, but also like the fans, like not Hazy. seeing them as like uh, as like customers, just seeing them as like people oh, yeah. that enjoy your product in a, in a very, very yeah. like random way. Like I always go back to like this example of like, you, you're never really gonna see people wearing, you know, 
jersey on on like eBay and you know cheer mm. outside of like eBay stores and be like Ooh, yeah yeah, eBay, yeah, you yeah know? exactly like, yeah. like fans are very very special and I guess that you you do understand them and then, like most of like your work at the at the league is really to understand them and learning what what to what to provide or what to what solutions do they need or what uh, how to like mediate between uh the organizers and what and what the fans want right yeah and i would find myself a lot in situations where i would be like i would sort of be trying to mediate between like the police and the fans and you know people who are really campaigning and then people from clubs who just didn't <laughs> understand each other at all you know and i sort of think my job was to understand all of them and i would and i think well i understand all of you i understand where you're all coming from but getting people to sort of agree on anything was was really sort of quite strange you know Um, and they would always expect there to be sort of animosity, you know, and I, my view was always, you have to actually just go and experience it for yourselves. Like I, I would constantly go and be in control rooms at stadiums or like when we were having problems with Newcastle Sunderland kickoff times, because the police were saying, oh, you know, the King game has to kick off at 12.30 because they'll all be in the pub beforehand. And so I, I made it my business to be amongst the people they thought were the trouble causers. And I discovered they were all about 12 years old. They were all, they were all young kids. I was like, so there's literally this footage somewhere of all of these like young boys who were all like chanting at the police, but from a good distance away, because they were a bit scared because they're only 12. And then there's <laughs> me amongst them. I mean, it must look so weird on the CCTV or the police footage, because I'm the only woman there amongst all of these young kids. And I'm just proving <laughs> it later on with my footage and saying, You don't need to worry about the pubs being open. These kids are too young to go to the pub. Right. Like you're just making a silly argument if you're going to say that the game has to kick off at a really inconvenient time, you know. <laughs> But like, I'm wondering if like all people working at the league have like that same mentality of being that mediator or was that more specific to your specific, to your role? That that was very specific to my role, I think, because my background had been that, you know, I'd been one of the mm -hmm. campaigners. I'd been one of those people. I mean, I started after the Hillsborough disaster, just sort of campaigning about football safety and mm -hmm. just being in their ear and turning up at meetings with the FA and with the Premier League. And then in the end, they said, come and work for us. And I kept mm -hmm. saying no, thinking this is much more fun to shout <laughs> from the outside. And then in the end, I realized that that might not be an option any longer because <laughs> things might change. So maybe I had to change from within. But yeah, I did often find like some sort of mind myself like some strange mm. interpreter having to explain to people why fans would behave the way that they would, you know. And it's like you said, trying to explain this isn't like if, if my local supermarket is going to have business, I'm not going to be out there with the buckets. I like campaigning and trying right. to raise money for them, you know, and if they treat me badly as a customer, yeah, I might be annoyed, but it doesn't hurt right. me, it doesn't actually really like pain me like I, I can't help it, but when I don't come up in a ballot for tickets and I have a season ticket at Anfield, I'm very lucky I can get to most of the games. But every now and then for cup finals, and we keep getting to cup finals, there is a ballot. And I feel personally affronted if I don't get a ticket. <laughs> I just feel like, how dare they not pick me out of the ballot for a ticket? Like, you know, I, I, I sort of think about all the times I've supported and everything I've done and you think, well, yeah, when everyone else can make that case. But yeah, I, th I think often my, my job was to try and be that interpreter. And I would find that there were people working in the game who didn't and still don't understand that, I think. And that is the fundamental yeah. problem to me, is that people think that the most dangerous people in the world, I think, are the people that think they're football fans. And they think they understand it. Do you know what I mean? Because they like wear the shirt or because they used to watch it on telly when they were younger or because they think the Premier League is cool and glamorous. 
and and they'd say things like oh you know i understand it because i've been a hardcore fan myself and i think no you you actually don't really understand it at all (laughs) and that's more dangerous than people who think who say well i'm not a fan i don't get it (laughs) you know people who people who know they're not fans will ask questions and try and understand but i think people who think that they are fans don't understand and they don't understand actually the role that those hardcore fans Mm. play because they'd hardcore fans i hate to use this word but they're part of the product i mean they're part of what makes a team successful you know, uh, there's nowhere more obvious than that at my at my club, Liverpool. You know, one of the most successful campaigns Liverpool fans did was when they just decided to down all of the flags. They just said, we know that what you're selling around the world is the colour that we provide at the match with all of our flags and banners. So we're all just not going to bring them next week. And it got the attention of the owners. They were like, well, where's all the flags and banners gone? You know, like what's happened to them? You know? And I would get asked by other clubs, like, where, where, where do Liverpool get all their flags and banners made? And I said, well, the fans make them. They said, no, but, then, but who's the people that makes them? Like, as though they thought there was some organisation behind it and that the club paid for it all. I'd be like, no, it's just a natural thing from the fans, you know. Interesting. And I, I, I maybe want to, like, ask you as, as well, since you've been in, 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 in the business for, mm. what, over, like, 20 years or something, mm. something around yeah. that. Long time now. Um, I, I do guess that you've seen that massive or exponential growth of the Premier League and to become really the number one league, football league in mm-hmm. the world currently. So I I maybe want to touch on that. Like, what have you seen, or what are some of the like reasons why you think that happened, or how would you how would you interpret that that popularity that it has now? I don't think that that's that's mm-hmm. you know obvious. I do think that that's something that you guys have been building for yeah. for the last couple of decades. I, we'd often get asked this question and we would get other leagues coming to see us and say, you know, tell us the secret of your success. You know, what do we need to do? And I'd always say, well, what you need to do is you start with 100 years of history. Because it didn't just start in 1992, you know, and I think the Premier League had an incredible opportunity and we're incredibly lucky in a lot of ways. And, and I think that we just managed that luck really well. If that makes sense. So I think that what we had obviously was a football league that had been going for a hundred years, you know, and was was successful. Um, and we had big support for for clubs, and we had a convergence of two things. We had Sky Television, so the the origins of actually having satellite television and the bidding the bidding that they needed they needed because they knew they needed a product. So they were basically prepared to invest in Premier League football because they knew they need something that people are obsessed about to bring them in to watch it. So they would pay more than it was worth, really, mm. to get everybody to sign up and have a Sky Dish. And so they saw that opportunity and thought football is the thing that we have to invest in and football was there and football was ready. At the same time, as in England, the football stadiums were all having to be rebuilt after Hillsborough. So there were a lot of new stadiums being built, there were seats being put in. And at that stage, it meant because of that building work, there were fewer tickets for fans. Mm. So you had this mad coincidence, really, of the incredible popularity brought about partly because of satellite TV, Euro 96, you know, was really popular. There was this new feeling that football was a safer, better thing to go to. Mm -hmm. At the same time as Sky were doing an awful lot of marketing, the Premier League had no marketing team at that stage. Mm. Literally no more. Everyone thought they had this big, slick marketing team. We had nothing. Sky did it all for us. They did everything. They completely transformed the product. Um, 
And then I hate calling it the product, but you know, <laughs> that's how they would see it. Um, and and then you had you had this situation where even season ticket holders couldn't go to games. So there was this mad pressure on tickets. There was this incredible premium that it was an incredible thing to go to a game. So if you wanted to go to a game, you had to buy a season ticket. Mm-hmm. So that lasted for years after in many clubs when you didn't actually need a season ticket, but you'd got one and you were used to it and you liked it. So you carried on going. So I think that was what made the Premier League fortunate at that time, I think. But I think it would have been easy to still break that, if you know what I mean. Like, you know, it's not just luck. I think actually there were some very bright people. I think, you know, the whole format had been put together by Rick Parry in the first place, which I think worked well. I think we had people like Richard Scudamore coming in who both understood the game, understood the fans pretty well, actually but also understand what he didn't know about the fans. So he, would, he wouldn't he would profess to be like, I'm the Uber fan who knows all of this stuff. He would say, I need you to do that bit. I know that you understand this stuff, so I need you on that to do that for me. Um, and so I think you had really bright people at the same time as you had basically every time it came to us selling the TV rights, something had changed in the broadcasting market that benefited us. Even when the European Commission actually decided that we couldn't sell our rights in the way we'd previously done it, that actually just increased the competition for our for our rights. Like it didn't actually make it better for the fans because now you have to have in, in the UK, you know, have to have a Sky package and a BT package and an Amazon package. You used to only have to have one package. Like it wasn't better for the fans, but it just created more competition. I think I think the question in the future is whether there's always that opportunity. And so far. Each time the Premier League rights have come up again, there's been a different cycle that's happened. So you've had the advent of streaming has happened. So you've had c- companies like Amazon and Netflix wanting to get involved in this. You know, so there's always been this change and it's actually been more about broadcasting than about the game. I think the key thing also just to add is that is that it was really as well about making sure that the game had integrity. And that was the key thing. And it's easy to forget that actually, but there was a lot of work going on behind the scenes to make sure the matches had integrity, to make sure that they were safe, you know, which was a lot of what I was doing, and to make sure that the, there wasn't any corruption on the, peel, on the field, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's super interesting. There, There's so many good points there. It's, it's a very interesting mix of, of factors that you, you, you say and you mentioned that really supported that. I feel like the economic element of like how supply and demand, like the number maybe of matches or the number of seats required people to over demand. Uh, and, and I do think that the, the history plays also an important part, but that plays an important part for the local audience, maybe not for the international audience which then became really global and exploded like in the early 2000s and then 2010 and now, now like the whole streaming element and thing like it's it's just making it you know the rise is exponentially like right now like the difference between one year and the next year in terms of like the value could be like massive so but but again as i was mentioning you have like this very interesting insight uh that i don't, I don't think many people could really give that answer so i do appreciate that um and one thing that's interesting about you as well is that you've also worked Uh, with clubs uh, directly and, of, of course, organizations. So how exactly do you think the roles differed uh, or how are they different from working you know, at the league level than working at club level and maybe also from like organizations from the outside? Like what, what are the different like roles and responsibilities that you had or what was more fun 
or what, what would you like better? Like, what, tell, tell us just a little bit more so you can understand what types of roles have you have you engaged with? Yeah, I, I think working at a club is the hardest thing that you can do, actually. I think it's really tough. I think if you support the club that you work for, that is actually really, really hard because your heart and your head are in the same place the whole time. And that is really, really stressful. And I also think if you don't support the club that you're working for, that's a bit of a head wreck. Um, so I think I was privileged, really, to work at the league. And my, my job was was really to be able to look right across the piece of what clubs were doing and work to improve it. And our job was to be invisible. You know, uh, our chief exec would always say that, like our job is to just make it look great, you know, and obviously say so that one of the things that, you know, you're saying about that tele that international television audience was that what they were seeing was packed stadiums. They were seeing really, really vibrant crowds. And what people want to do is be part of a crowd. If they see it's full, they want to be part of it. If you see a stadium that's empty, you don't really want to be part of it. So our job was like often like I'd be working with all of the ticketing managers, for instance, to make sure that they were working together to make sure every seat was sold. That sounds really basic, but actually it didn't always happen unless we proactively really worked with them to make sure because you had like home and away allocations and basically if they disagreed on something you could end up with a load of empty seats so sometimes I'd literally see empty seats at a game and think that's because the ticket office managers didn't agree I need to fix that and so I'd be on that on the Monday morning um so it's it's sort of constantly peddling in the background really to keep the whole thing moving but my role was very much to look at what was good that clubs were doing also look at where the problems were but be able to sort of spot the problems and, and sort of be able to put something in place to fix them. So if we saw that, like, for instance, if they weren't, you know, if there were problems like in safety, then we'd say, actually, you know, there's a problem that's not just happening at one club, it's happening right everywhere. So we need to put something in place to fix it. We might need a, a campaign about it, or we might need to just do something behind the scenes to change it. We might need new standards. And we would just look at whatever the best solution was. And sometimes it would be like the stick, you know, it'd be saying, right, we've got to introduce a new rule. If you do that, you've got to get more than 14 clubs to agree. So you only ever put a rule in front of the Premier League owners if you know you've got more than 14 saying yes. So you'd have to do an awful lot of work before a shareholders meeting. And those meetings could be really bizarre when you look around that table at who the Premier League owners are. I mean, they would be strange. Everyone flying in on their helicopters and in their like private jets. And it was just insane sometimes what people would be doing. And you're trying to have a rational conversation in amongst all of these sort of oligarchs. I mean, it was it would be strange. Um, but but I think I think what was always interesting for me was just like actually the detail of behind the scenes, you know, and, and seeing actually how hard it is for people working at clubs. I, I spent a lot of time out at clubs because I knew that there was a real possibility that if we didn't connect with the clubs properly, the people working at the clubs would think it's all right for them in their offices, in the leagues and in the FA. They would be resentment, you know, because they'd think, well, you don't really know what it's like out on the ground you don't know how difficult it is for us you know we're facing these issues with our fans with our sponsors with our players every day and you don't understand how hard it is you know the press officers would be saying to us do you know what it's like trying to get a manager out of the dressing room when he's lost four nil and he's throwing things at the players like and you're telling me i've got to get my manager out here within 20 minutes to meet your broadcast rules you know, come here and see what it's like on a match day. So I would always make sure that we went out there to see what it was like on a match day. So we could see how it worked and not put in stupid rules that just were impossible for them to meet or, you know, were, were just going to make their lives stupidly difficult, really. And then, of course, you'd get their support because if they knew that you could see what they were experiencing, 
So it was a privilege, really, because I got to see everything behind the scenes at all of the clubs, which was which was an incredibly valuable experience for what I do now. You know, I got I got the chance to sort of learn from everybody from like clubs like Blackpool through to Liverpool and, you know, Arsenal. Yeah. And Tottenham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty unique. And you you said like maybe working at clubs was like probably the toughest. Was that also like your favorite or you had like some something that you liked more where you like failed, you executed your best work within football? I think what I really loved actually was bringing the clubs together to work together. Because I'd always say to them, like, I know you're competing on the pitch, but you're not always competing off the pitch and you can learn from each other. And actually, you know, you're playing each other all the time. You have to learn from each other. And when I first started this, there would be quite, not really tensions, but, you know, people from clubs just wouldn't really get why they needed to do this and why it would help. And actually, by the time we actually got them together, where I would get them together for two day events, we would take them somewhere where we would just really immerse them in some new ideas. And I wouldn't just take them to football grounds like we take them to other sports, to other events, to other venues, spend two days together and they would all have a good few drinks together in the evening. And then they would really work well together. And then actually we were needed less centrally as a team because we would know that they had just fixed things on the day. Do you know what I mean? Because they actually got on better. Like the ticket manager, the ticketing managers were quite a challenge because they seemed to just deal with adversity all the time somehow and just sort of not always find ways to make things work more smoothly. But I know in the pandemic, they worked really, really well together. And one of them contacted me and said, like, Kathy, that's your legacy, that we actually all got on really well. And we all like tore each other's ideas apart and we trusted each other. And we would have these sessions where we'd say, this is what we think we're going to do in the pandemic. Like, do you think it's going to work? And it was all kept confidential, but they really supported each other. And that sort of made me feel like I achieved something there. Because when I see a match going smoothly... I, I know what it's taken behind the scenes to get there. Right. You know, you, yeah, you know, the, the like the big part of the iceberg that no one really, like fans don't really yeah, see. Yeah, I'll see like the how smallest thing. smooth everything thing. is, right? I'll see the smallest yeah. thing, like just an exit route working or something. And I'll just think that's because <laughs> of what we did. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like that's awesome. But it also, it sounds like it, it speaks a lot about you and how like you, you're, you have like this personality of mediating between, you know, it, whether it be clubs and other clubs or fans in the league or fans with each other. So I do feel like you, your mission and like you, what you, you, you really thrive or where, where you deliver your best work is really being that mediator. Yeah. Um, it doesn't and, always and work, I, I, you know, I got it badly wrong once. <laughs> yeah. I guess, I guess you, I guess everyone gets it wrong, but that's how you exactly like you learn. And that's like, mm. that's probably also why you're probably number one at that, uh, you know, in, even like mm. at, at all worldwide leagues, thing yeah. because you just experience all those things that yeah. all those like adversities and all those like challenges and i do think that there's like many there could be like people that you can count with only one hand that have the, this amount of experiences and this transition at, at this level you know so it's it's awesome to see it this way yeah there's very few probably yeah but i do think that's like that's a really like an awesome product of your uh, of your experiences and i and i do think that's also the product of how Exactly, like you came up with the postal, which I do want you maybe to share a little bit more about what the idea was behind with uh, behind the postal, how exactly it works, who is it for, uh, maybe maybe share exactly the, the motivation behind it, because I do think that that's an accurate representation uh, made in a product. Because here's how I see your career, and I and I and correct me if I'm wrong, but here's where I see it: 
you've already given service to like all these like organizations, clubs, leagues for, for a lot of time. So you accumulate all these like experiences that make you very, very unique. So then you, you can kind of like became like this uh, productized consultant that gave, you know, very high quality uh, consultancy services that are not, you know, crazy as like giving service to like a whole league or something, but it's like very more specific and aimed to like solve specific pro pro uh, problems. Now you've you've now climbed to like the next step, which is really a service uh, based on a product. So it's something that you can basically sell to different like organizations, venues, and and clubs. Um, and I do think that that transition is just a a very uh, structured way of of building a career. Right, you first acquire the experience, then you understand how to solve specific problems, and then you productize that. Um, but tell me, how do you see that? And also like. What was the initial intention of turning that all that experiences into like this one specific product? Yeah, I think that's a really good description of it, actually. Yeah, and I think it's sometimes been by more more by accident by than by design. But yeah, one of the things that I really realized when I was working with clubs and working particularly with safety officers, I realized how hard it was for them. Um, and one of the challenges that I had really was just how we make the whole experience better, how we improved mm -hmm. the stewarding and the security staff on the on the day, how we just made sure fewer people were getting ejected or, you know, having problems or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the safety briefings were a real challenge and they were a big part of this, that the people who were there working on a match day just weren't really being properly engaged. You know, mm. they're just casual workers. They were being treated casually. So it was sort of a bit of a mission of mine to think, how do we improve that? And, and I suppose coming from that experience of working at a league, I was always thinking of what can you do centrally that improves it for everybody? Like with one thing, like you can't be out there training everybody all of the time. You can't be interfering. The clubs want to do their own thing um, anyway. But so I realized that it was through providing like central platform. And I realized that actually a lot of the processes, even at big Premier League clubs, are still like people are just using like Excel spreadsheets or like literally having to phone around people to see if they can work on a match day. It's very basic. So we built this tool, basically, which was like scheduling and availability for all of the match day workers. It gives them information before the day. You can actually have an audit trail of, of what we've actually briefed them on. Because here, one of the one of the big, you know, one of the awful experiences here was not in football, was at the Manchester Arena bombing that happened a few years ago. And the first question that was asked in the public inquiry was, how did you brief the stewards? Mm -hmm. How did they know what to do? because they had actually seen the guy with the bomb mm. and hadn't done anything, but they weren't blamed because what was blamed was actually the fact that it was the people who were supposed to brief them. And it was a matter of, yeah, it was like, how, what did you do to actually tell these guys what to do on the day? Well, nothing really. We recruited them that day off a Facebook ad and we hadn't really trained them. It's like, well, you can't expect them to know what to do then. And we were already building this, but it made us realize just the importance of having that sort of audit trail really so that you know what people know. So now there should be nobody who's using our platform that comes into a football ground and actually is working there and doesn't know all of the basic safety requirements you can check on their phone you know it's it's instant you can see actually have they gone through all the briefing um have they answered the questions <laughs> and they should be properly trained so yeah that was that was sort of my mission was to it's always been my mission i suppose to improve safety for fans but in a way that they don't have to know about it that's very interesting and i and i do like the thing that you mentioned that um you know, clubs where you're just running around with like spreadsheets and, and all like tools. But here, here, here yeah. here's what I'm thinking. I'm, I'm sure that there's like leagues 
maybe probably like Latin America or Africa or Asia, which are mm. not even using that, you know? So I do think yeah. that you are at this very specific um, gap area in, in leagues. And of course, like you're working at, at the best league in the world, but there's of course a lot of opportunity in leagues around the world. They're not using or not adopting technological solutions to things that, you know, are, are yeah. just basic, you know? So yeah. I mean, made it incredibly simple because what I realized was the products that are out there where nothing was built specifically for venues or for, for sports or for football or anything. It was all big, heavy systems that most, most venues don't even need. And that most, most clubs are actually quite small. Most clubs are not like Liverpool or Tottenham with big stadiums. Most football clubs are actually really small places that just need to be able to manage having some staff turn up on a match day. It's got to work for them. It's got to be small and cheap and simple. It's not got to be some big heavy system that only the big clubs can use. But you know? but you see you see like the, um, the 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 sea of opportunity here. Like if that lacks at the best league in the world, like imagine like all the leagues that are you know just behind. I I do think that there's like this massive amount of opportunity that uh you know could potentially be explored that everywhere else. Um, I do I do maybe want to ask you uh one of the last questions uh, because we're running out of time. But you um. With this whole like uh, apostle project of empowering, you know, both uh, venue organizations and, and matches and, and, and the people just working at there. Um, you also um, work a lot for, for like diversity and inclusion in sports, uh, and particularly in football. So maybe what is what is like your, your, your biggest takeaway in terms of like best practices on how to approach this, this like specific issue or specific uh, topic? Say I am a specific you know, venue organizer or team owner at, uh, going to say Brazil or something. And it's, and, and you, you could really share your framework or your mindset towards uh, addressing that issue or that topic. How would you, how would you suggest people at that, at that level, uh, think about this, pro this, 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 this thing that you, you've, you've, you've been working so, so long for? I think, I think you really have to understand what the experience of each of those people is. It sounds really basic, but I think it's true that unless you can put yourself in the shoes of somebody who is maybe female at a football match or somebody who is using a wheelchair at a football match or somebody who is black or Asian in a very white crowd at a football match, you can't really understand what it's like. So I think either you have to try and put yourselves in their shoes and have that experience and not enough people working in football even just go as a fan, actually, and just, just go and mix amongst the crowd and experience what it's like. Or you have to really hear from people. So in our training stuff that we do, that we put into a posto, we do little interviews with fans. And there was one that really resonated me with me with a guy who got involved with the Proud Lily Whites, which is the Tottenham um, gay fans group. And they, they work across LGBT. QT plus, you know, fans who support the club and they really work well with other clubs as well. And he told me about his experience being as a, as a young gay guy going to a match and hearing people chant this Chelsea Rent Boys song at Chelsea fans. And it was his own fans singing it. But he was just so frozen in that moment because he realized like he was reacting to it personally. No one could see it probably but he thought that people could see it. And it was so hard for him in that moment that he stopped going to football matches because he just thought, I'm, I'm giving, he wasn't out. He was like, I'm giving myself away as this young gay guy. Everybody's suddenly going to know. It felt like his whole world fell apart from this one moment of experience. And what changed his experience years, like six years later, six years, he didn't go to games. He just told his friends he wasn't interested anymore. Never told anybody why. Six years later, he saw a rainbow flag at the Tottenham Stadium. 
And he joked with his friend and said, if only that was some gay fans, I mean, it won't be because you'd never get that a football match. And then he looked it up and found that it was. So I think, I think understanding that experience, listening to those fans, I think you really have to listen, not but really in detail to their story so that you understand the emotion of that experience. Then you can actually make sure that they feel safe in that environment and they're welcome in that environment. It has to feel like you, we were expecting you. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a great framework. And I do think that that starts with really going to fans um, and talking to them, just, just, just having them uh, share their experiences and being able to sit and listen, you know, for a while and, and getting, but I do think that that's probably easy for you to say, because you do understand and you do, you do know how to mediate uh, between what people want and what, you know, the real motivation behind what their, their, their words say. So maybe, maybe you, maybe you could also, you could also work, you know, maybe it could also be through like a post on ways of just understanding better fans, because maybe not everyone knows. It's like, why if a fan tells me like, yeah, like, I don't, I don't like the vibe, but I just don't know why, but maybe, maybe by the way he's saying it or by the, the, the different wording he uses, maybe you'll understand, but not, 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 not everyone. So it's that opening that gap, or that uh, door of understanding the perception of fans that not everyone. You have to really hear what they're saying. Yeah, we found it even with the matchday staff as well, that it's only by actually having quite a few conversations with them that we actually understand what their issues are, you know, and we'll then point out issues to the club that the club has had no idea are happening. But we'll say, well, did you listen to them? You know, did you actually ask them the questions? But did you really listen? Like, did you do it in a casual way? Did you sit down and have a chat with them? Or did you just fire some questions at them in a room when they were surrounded by like 50 other people, an environment in which there's no way they're going to answer your question? So, yeah, for me, I think it's always about genuinely really listening to fans and trying to put yourself in their shoes and understand why it's so important. Understand that it's actually part of your identity if you support the football club and that, how they react to you really, really matters. Because it's like unrequited love all week. It's like, you know, you lose sleep over your football club. You think about it all of the time. It becomes so important to you that then when you actually have any interaction with the club on match day and it doesn't go well, it, it's like there's all of this sort of pent up emotion. And I think, I think clubs don't understand that enough. And I think they need to understand that because you need to understand that's what you're dealing with. You're in the emotions business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I do think like, again, maybe through Apostle, you know, it could be like a different, like, I don't know, branch or something from from Apostle, you could you could you really cover that, uh, that uh, gap. And, and again, like, if you're if you're competing at that level on like Premier League, like, just think about how massive the opportunity is like outside Premier League, um, you know, just just for food for thought, just ideas, you know, we're in, we're at the halftime snacks where we're discussing opportunities, uh, of course, If you want an advisor or a consultant or something, yes, <laughs> I'm here. Yeah, I mean, I love doing that as well. And I love, work, I love working with like smaller clubs. I love it when I go to like Hayes and Yedding, who are a really small club near me. Or like I was at Bristol Rovers the other day. And I love it when it just feels real, you know, rather than, you know, I worked on the Tottenham Stadium and that was an amazing experience, you know, being there and, and working on the opening of that stadium. Katie, this has been awesome. I mean, there's just so much, so many more questions that I have, but uh halftime snacks are very short to keep people engaged and to be to to keep people interested in learning more so of course they can reach out or they can find you know a post or your website and, and learn more or get in contact uh if they're interested in what you do and what you offer so that's the cool thing before we wrap it up i do have like a last personal question 
um, that you can you can answer in like 30 seconds or less for sure. Um, but the one I have for you is let's say you meet uh, Kathy Long, 18 year old Kathy Long. Um, and she doesn't know she doesn't know you or you, but you're like this this advisor from the future. What would you advise uh, Kathy Long from 18, 18 years old? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I would just say follow your heart, actually. That's probably what I did. But I think I would say, I think I would say just never lose sight of what's important. Actually, never lose sight of the, of the importance of the role that football plays in people's lives. I hope that that's what I've been able to do, but that's certainly the advice I would give myself just in case I wasn't going to listen to it. very much for tuning in if you enjoy this episode hit the subscribe button and leave a review on apple podcasts if you enjoy learning about the business and technology behind sports make sure you subscribe to the sports tech biz newsletter i'll leave the link in the show notes see you all next week bye bye